Sydney Environment Institute, in partnership with Sydney Ideas, presents Mark Williams on how humans made the Anthropocene biosphere with respondent Ian McCowman. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, um, and welcome to this uh, Sydney Environment Institute event. Thank you very much for coming. Um, before uh, we get down to the events of the day, I'd like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation on whose lands we're meeting, and also to pay homage to their elders past and present. We at uh, SCI believe that all Australians should be awed and grateful by the grateful to and awed by the custodianship of Aboriginal peoples and the way they have exercised that custodianship over our lands and seas for 65,000 years. And I guess uh, entreat all of us to help in ensure that we don't squander that great gift that they have offered us over that time. So tonight, um, I'm really, really happy to introduce uh, Mark Williams. He's a professor of paleobiology from the University of Leicester. He's going to talk to us about something that is an endearing passion and interest of his, how humans made the Anthropocene biosphere. Mark uh, and his colleague, Jan Zalasevich, are two really distinguished and prominent people in what we might call the Anthropocene debate. They are part of, the, of a working group, uh, which is a, a working group from the International Commission of Stratigraphy. It's a group of, of formal society of geologists who are going to decide whether their fellow practitioners will agree that the Holocene, the, the period over the last 11 million years where we've lived on Earth, a period of extraordinary stability, growth of cities and uh, of agriculture, has given way to a new uh, geological era, uh, the era of the Anthropocene, an era where humans have become a disruptive force of nature, uh, like the weather and uh, the sea and the winds. Um, but I also like to say that Mark and Jan in that sense, have been key figures in the debate about the significance of the Anthropocene, because it's not simply a geological significance, it's a biophysical one, it's the one that affects all of us in this room one way or the other. And uh, I think having Mark here is an indication really of one of the perhaps few good byproducts of the Anthropocene, which is to generate in a lot of us who are in different disciplines, um, you know, literature, history, uh, you know, law, architecture, science, natural science, biology, and so on, who lived in different silos for most of our academic careers. The urgency of the Anthropocene has forced us 
to come together to try and solve the wicked problems that it produces. And I think that's, uh, um, Mark is a symptom of this, uh, of someone who works together with people from all manner of disciplines. Uh, so without further ado, uh, except, no, I should say one more thing. Mark and Jan Zalasevich are, I think, unusual uh, natural scientists in that they not only produce major papers in nature, but they also write popular books levelled uh, at you and me. Um, I'll mention three of them. The Goldilocks Planet, uh, which is a, a wonderful book, and uh, the, the, the more recent book, which is on oceans on Earth and other planets. And I think another one forthcoming, the skeleton frame, is it? The skeleton framework of life, which is due out this year. So they, they churn them out too. But these are, these are fantastically readable and accessible um, and fascinating books, and I urge you to get your Kindles out and sort of hit Mark Williams. Um, anyway, without further ado, over to you, Mark. i just say one more thing, which is that what we're going to do... Uh, sorry, I should have said about the format for tonight. Mark is going to speak for about 40 minutes. I'll do a feeble five-minute kind of reply, and then we're going to open it over to you for questions. Thanks very much. So I want to, you to imagine that you are an alien civilization and you're flying past the dark side of planet Earth. And over the last couple of centuries, you will have noticed something really significant happening there because now the night sky is ablaze with the lights of hundreds of cities with more than a million population. And that night sky and those lights are telling you something very significant about the way that humans are influencing energy flow in the biosphere and the way that we are reconfiguring the, that biosphere. And so what I want to chat with you about for the next 40 minutes or so is how we have had a fundamental impact on planet Earth across a whole range of different components of the Earth system and how that impact will actually manifest itself in the geological record so that there's a permanent, there will be a permanent geological record of us. I just remembered I need to go and stand on the stage so everybody can see me. So I'm going to labor the biosphere in particular. And I'm going to show you how your and my impact has been absolutely profound much more profound, in fact, than a Hollywood depiction of how humans might change the biosphere. Because here we've got a, a radioactively made gigantic tarantula which is misogynistically rampaging across the landscape. However, it's not going to survive very long because a very young Clint Eastwood there is already locked and loaded. And this unique component of the biosphere is not going to last very long. It's a little bit symptomatic of what we, as humans, have been doing to this planet. So I want you to think about what your fossil record as a species might be on planet Earth. Let's think about our total weight as a species. If we take an individual human as being 62 kilograms, 
if you add up the weight of all, human, all humanity on planet Earth, then that's about 450 million tonnes of you and me. That's a huge figure. And even if we just take our skeletons, and as a paleontologist, that's the bit that I'm most interested in, because that's the bit that gets preserved, we're still looking at 72 million tonnes of humanity on planet Earth. Let's look at this in another way. At present, there are 7.35 billion human beings on this planet. That's a huge number. In fact, I think it's difficult for us as individuals to actually comprehend the sheer numbers of humans on this planet. So I want to bring this down to more manageable numbers. So let's think about the population of Sydney, the city that we're in at present. It's the biggest city in Oceania, five million people. And now let's go down a little bit and see what some of the other cities in this area, what their populations are. So this is Newcastle, with about 300,000 inhabitants. Maitland, with about 67,000 inhabitants. Beautiful Byron Bay, with about 5,000 5, inhabitants. I keep forgetting this, sorry. I'll try and hold it close to my mouth. With about 5,000 inhabitants. And then let's go down one step further to the nice seaside town of Balmoral, with a little bit less than 1,000 inhabitants. Why am I showing you this? Let's have a look at some of our closest relatives. How many towns and cities do you think the total population of orangutans on planet Earth would actually make? Let's see. So, the next two most populous primates after the human species are the Bornean gibbon. It makes the population of Canberra. Its, its total population is equivalent to one relatively small human city. Chimpanzees are equivalent to the population of Newcastle, one relatively small human city. The Bornean orangutan, even if we take its upper population estimates, it's about the population of Maitland. The Sumatran orangutan, it's about the population of Byron Bay, so one very small town for that particular species. And then that beautiful animal staring out at you, the golden lion tamarin, is about the population of Balmoral. So we can put this another way also. If you think about yourselves as a species, as a primate species, and total up all your numbers, and compare that to all other primate species on planet Earth, that's everything, all of the primates, you are more than 99.9% .9 of the total population of primates on planet Earth. So I think we can state right from the word go that we as a species truly are a global force on planet Earth at present. If that is the case, and I hope I'm going to be able to show you in some detail that that really is the case, how would we recognize our impact in the geological record? If we came back 100 million years in the future, would we be able to see the human impact? And can we quantify that human impact? Can we see exactly how we've changed the biosphere? And is that change absolutely fundamental, even from a geological perspective? 
we have to start with Earth time. I have to take you back to the birth of Earth 4,500 million years ago in a catastrophic collision. The delivery of water to the surface of the Earth from asteroids. The oceans forming 4 billion years ago. And very quickly, life gets going on this planet. Perhaps within a few hundred million years, well, that's quick for a geologist, life gets going on planet Earth. Now, if we're going to look at our impact, we have to measure that impact against all of the changes in the whole of the history of planet Earth. And that's a big ask, because we've got to look back at 4,500 million years of Earth history. Now, figures like that I find very difficult to deal with, even as a geologist. And so I resort to the geological timescale. This is the timescale that geologists have developed over about 200 years of research. And what it's doing is it's subdividing that immensity of time into smaller packages of time. So if we look to the top of the Cenozoic on the left there, that's time as the clock is ticking at present. And currently, we're in the Holocene epoch. Now let's go backwards down the first column, keep going down, the second, the third, the fourth, and right there at the back, you're back nearly four and a half billion years. And for most of this time, we have a rock record on planet Earth. Now all of those subdivisions that you can see there represent fundamental changes to the Earth system. The Earth's a dynamic planet. It's not static. It's constantly, continually changing. So each subdivision there is signaling something different. Let's just take one of the divisions, the Mesozoic era in the middle there. We know that as the time between about 250 million years ago and 66 million years ago when dinosaurs were walking across this planet. And we can find their fossils in rocks. We know it's a characteristic interval of Earth time that began with a catastrophe and ended with a catastrophe that we can pick out in the geological record. So what I'm going to suggest to you this evening is that, in fact, we should be adding a new epoch of geological time to this time scale, an Anthropocene epoch to sit on top of the Holocene that denotes your and my massive impact on planet Earth. And that's what we're going to explore as we go through this talk. <clears throat> now, the idea of a change system is not new. It goes back at least into the 19th century. So this chap on the left here, famous Milanese geologist Antonio Stepani, he already said in the 1870s that he thought humans were agents of geological change. The idea didn't really garner much support amongst geologists. In fact, for most of the 20th century, geologists were quite dismissive of this idea. Really, the idea was only resurrected with Paul Cripson, famous Nobel laureate, atmospheric chemist, who came up with this term again, together with Eugene Stormer, at the beginning of the 21st century, again suggesting that humans were agents of geological change and that we now lived in the Anthropocene epoch of geological time. Now, if we're going to ask the question, have we fundamentally changed planet Earth? We need to ask the question also, what is it that makes us human and makes us completely different from all the other species on this planet so that we really can enact a fundamental change. This story's unfolded over a very long period of time. 
So if we start to think about those things that characterize us, our technology, which of course we share with other primates, with other great apes, and actually with a whole range of different organisms on planet Earth. But it's humans and our lineage that have really developed this technology over the past three million years. We could look at our own fossil record in the geological record. And as a group of species, our genus, Homo, goes back 2.8 million years to Africa. And about 2 million years ago, we started to leave Africa and we started to move throughout Eurasia. This species, for example, Homo erectus, translocated itself out of Africa. It colonized much of Eurasia, got as far as Java to Sangiran in central Java. That's also Homo erectus. And then about 300,000 years ago, it's a very recent discovery, we can recognize anatomically modern humans like us, Homo sapiens. They look like us, but it doesn't appear that they're thinking like us yet. We still have to come forward in time to find evidence of humans, not just physically like us, but also behaviorally like us. We get a sense of that if we go back 70,000 years and we look in the Blombos cave in South Africa. We can find there little pieces of okra that have these scratch marks on them. These people are doing the same kinds of things as us. They're making inventories, they're using things perhaps for memory, or maybe they're abstract designs, but it looks essentially modern. These are behaviorally modern humans. And 40,000 years ago, we can find art in cave paintings from Europe to Indonesia. Again, these are behaviorally modern humans. These people are also developing their technology. And as they start to migrate out across the world, we can begin to recognize that impact on the environment. So they arrive in Australia, perhaps 65,000 years ago, very recent research suggesting this. And as they migrate out across the old world and into the new world, they appear to be associated with major changes in the biosphere. All of these are contentious because they may also be a reflection of climate change too. So in North America, when humans arrive, around about 15,000 years ago, all of these great animals disappear within the space of a few thousand years. Again, probably related to humans and their advanced flint technologies. It's the beginning of the human-induced extinction of fauna and flora on planet Earth. What else characterizes us as a species? Our agriculture, our ability to sequester huge amounts of energy from the biosphere, again starting in multiple sites from around 8,000 years ago, in the Americas, in East Asia, and in the Fertile Crescent in the Middle East. And our industry, which is accelerating our ability to control the world around us, so that 200 years ago, we could build a suspension bridge with a span of 60 meters across the Iron Bridge Gorge in Colebrookdale, not so far from where I live. And now, Now, we can build a suspension bridge in Japan that is four kilometers long. 
in two centuries. An incredible feat of engineering. Our ability to make other organisms extinct is still unfolding. Here are some of the really evocative species that we've got rid of in the not-too-distant past. Everyone knows the dodo. The top right is the Caribbean monk seal. The bottom right, bottom left, is the wonderful Yangtze dolphin, only gone about a decade ago. And do any of you, does anybody in this room, apart from the architects I spoke with yesterday, know what the bottom right picture is? It's another organism that we've made extinct. Yeah. It's the smallpox virus, as I heard some people at the front say. We can date that to a month. We know it went extinct in December 1979. That's when we eradicated it in the wild. We made it extinct. All of these are potential markers in the geological record of your and my influence. So, if you look at this long record, and it's been unfolding from three million years, how might we look for the event horizon? Which of these big changes would we recognize as distinguishing our species as being absolutely fundamental in influencing planet Earth? Most of these earlier signals that we've been talking about are sporadic. They're rare, they're difficult to find, they're only isolated to particular localities, like the early human record, for example. And from my perspective as a geologist, that makes them not so useful for defining a geological boundary. Though, of course, they're immensely useful in terms of thinking about the narrative that allowed us to get where we are at present. What I need as a geologist is the event horizon. I need something big, a big signal that I can correlate everywhere around planet Earth. So a big event would be an asteroid hitting planet Earth 66 million years ago. It leaves its chemical signature all around planet Earth, and it also leaves its biological signature because it's the time when the non-avian dinosaurs are wiped from the surface of the planet. This is the Cretaceous tertiary extinction event. This is the kind of thing that I need to look for as a geologist. So let's look at this from one perspective. Let's take one component of what it means to be human, our ability to construct civilization and cities, and see if we can use cities as one possible means to look at the geological record of your and my immense influence on planet Earth. Now, if you think about this from a human evolution perspective, and certainly if you think about this from a geological perspective, then urban centers seem to be a complete drop in the ocean. They're about 8,000 years old. That's not really much from the perspective of 3 million years of human evolution, and certainly not much from the perspective of 4,500 million years of Earth evolution. And yet, that drop in the ocean is signaling something absolutely fundamental, a fundamental change to the biosphere. So this is the flow of energy through cities and through human structures. And it's huge. We're talking about exajoules here. And you can see that this is a curve which is accelerating, particularly from the middle part of the 20th century. 
And if you do a quick calculation, you'll work out that about 75% of that human energy taken from things like coal and gas and oil and nuclear is centered on urban centers, even though urban centers are only about 54% of the population. So there's a huge amount of energy used in the urban zone. Now, I've given you that figure of 541 exajoules, which is all the energy we take from those natural resources. But then, as a species, we take energy from the biosphere too. So a conservative estimate would say that we take about 25% of net primary production. That's the energy locked into the biomass of plants on land. If you add that to what we take from natural resources, you and I as a species use as much energy as is sequestered in all plants on land in a year. The same amount. We're equivalent to the whole terrestrial plant biosphere, the above ground component of it. That's one species, which is incredible and totally unprecedented. There's no time in Earth history when one species has dominated energy like this. If we're going to think about cities as a signature of us on planet Earth, what might actually fossilize? If we take a big city like Tokyo with its 36 million people, what might we find in 100 million years' time? So as a geologist, I look for fossils, and I look for different kinds of fossils. So this is a body fossil of a trilobite that lived about 520 million years ago. And you're looking at its exoskeleton, just the hard bits that have preserved. So it's the skeletal bits that I would refer to as a body fossil. They're not the only kind of fossils we find. We also find trace fossils. I hope you can all see this. You see that the layers go across, and then down the middle, there is a really big burrow. And that burrow is in an ancient riverbed from 400 million years ago. And it's about a meter deep. And we think it might have been made by a millipede, a millipede that might have been two meters long. So not something you really wanted to bump into. That's a trace fossil. And there's the millipede on the right there, having a fight with a amphibian. Technofossils. We've talked about body fossils and trace fossils. This is a unique kind of fossil that is a product of you and I. It's made from unique materials like ceramics that you don't find in nature. And all of these things on my dinner plate or my lunch plate are potentially technofossils. The ceramics, the glass, the wood, the tray, all of them can preserve. Even the food, the rice and the soup is a potential trace fossil or a technofossil, but it doesn't have a very good chance of surviving 100 million years. In fact, it was only going to survive about 10 minutes after this photograph. But all of them are potentially technofossils. So what might preserve? What is ephemeral and what is permanent? Let's have a look to see what of these technofossils or trace fossils made by you and me might actually preserve. I'm going to take you to an Iron Age hill fort about 15 kilometers to the east of where my university is in the English Midlands. This is Borough Hill Hill Fort. You can see the rampart circumventing the fort. And if you were there about two and a half thousand years ago, that's what you would have seen. 
roundhouses sitting inside that Iron Age hill fort. Now, they're not very recalcitrant structures. You wouldn't expect them to preserve over geological time frames. And yet, components of those structures do preserve. So if you go to Borough Hill, you can find the furrow, the circular furrow that was built around these houses to drain them, a trace fossil, a burrow of human activity. And in those furrows, you'd find ceramics and bones, products, technofossils of what those people were using in that village, survived over a long period of time. Let's go forward in time a little bit to a classical city. Now we're in the port region of Imperial Rome. And in the second century, we're going to change this, this port region. We're going to build a harbor where the river Tiber is exiting into the Tyrrhenian Sea. And it will leave a distinctive signal of humans from 2,000 years ago. Let's see what it does. So this is a sedimentary log taken through that river. So you're looking at the sediments at the bottom, then working your way up through it. And at the bottom are the natural sediments formed by the river before the human interruption. And then the harbor is built, and the sedimentary style changes completely. And it's not just that the sediments change, the fauna living in the water changes. And the things we find in those sediments change. So now we find ceramics and bone and things associated with these people. A distinctive sedimentary pattern that can preserve into the geological record. Let's take a modern city. What will happen to this modern city? It could be Sydney. In this case, it's Hong Kong. What will happen if we make it into stratigraphy? I'm going to flatten it. I'm going to emphasize that I really like Hong Kong, so I'm only flattening this from a theoretical perspective. What will we get if we flatten Hong Kong? At the bottom, we might expect to find stone tools of people who may have lived there long, long ago. And as we look through the sedimentary succession, on top of that, we might find evidence of technology of iron. And at the top, we'll find plastics. And we won't just find plastics in Hong Kong, we'll find plastics in Sydney and London and New York and everywhere on planet Earth. Even deep on the ocean abyssal plains, we'll find plastic. Because now, in the middle part of the 20th century, we have a signal of plastics that is absolutely global and accumulating. So now we're starting to get signatures that really indicate our impact on planet Earth from the middle part of the 20th century. We also have to think about what we'll preserve. We're accumulating these sediments, but which bits of our structures might preserve over a long time frame? We hope, because we think we've had a profound impact on the planet, that our monumental structures will survive as an indicator of how great we were in the past. Oh dear, the Parthenon. The symbol of our Western civilization, or of Western civilization, sits on top of the Acropolis. It sits on a hill. So from a perspective of the rock cycle on planet Earth, it will not survive. It will not endure. It will be eroded into the sea. What I need as a geologist are areas of low-lying ground that are accumulating sediment at present. I need a city like Shanghai. Shanghai is sinking. 
It's sinking quite rapidly because of the extraction of groundwater, because of a growing population, but also because of the huge number of buildings that have been built there. Now, that's not good for Shanghai from Shanghai's population perspective, but it's really good for me as a geologist because long-term, Shanghai will give me a really good geological signature. It's going to be preserved by the sediments that bury it. And of course, we know, because of our impact on climate, that sea level is going to rise over the coming centuries. So it's not just Shanghai, of course. Many places around the world will be inundated, and that will potentially give us a global signature, again, of the Anthropocene and of our impact. Just think about Bangladesh. One meter of sea level rise will remove 25% of its surface area. That's pretty terrible. Then we have to think of the zones of unusual accumulation that also might preserve our geological record long into the future. So now we're on the beautiful island of Kyushu in southern Japan. And the mountain in the background is a volcano called Unzundaki. It's very active. It last erupted in the early 1990s, and it buried the village of Shimabara in Nagasaki Prefecture. That's Shimabara in the foreground. It's preserved Pompeii style well into the future. And then we have other symbols of our destructive force, again in the middle part of the 20th century. This is Berlin at the end of the Second World War, devastated. And all of the rubble from Berlin was collected up to make this mountain in the distance, the Teufelsberg, the Devil's Mountain, here in the background. That's made from all the rubble. It has that Cold War listing station on the top of it. It, too, is a structure that shows our ability to reap devastation as a species in the middle part of the 20th century. And again, it's likely to be a long-lived geological structure. And then patterns across time, how things change across time. If we went back just a century, we'd see clear regional styles in architecture across the planet. A Russian style, an Australian style, a Nigerian style, an American style. We'd be able to recognize instantly where we were if we landed on this planet from outer space. And then something dramatic happens in the middle part of the 20th century the international style takes hold, and the regional disappears, and the international style is made from steel and concrete and glass and plastic, and these materials are global. So we go from the regional style with my Anglo-Saxon church in England from ninth, the 9th century to the Borobudur from the 9th century in central Java. They're quite distinctly different. But then look at London and Jakarta. There's no difference. They almost look the same and Sydney, and New York, and wherever else you want to go. Again, a distinctive signal from the middle part of the 20th century. The massing of people in these cities is associated with another structure, another kind of borough structure, which is completely human. So now, because cities are growing so fast, we have to build transport networks to move people around those cities. And this starts in London in the 1860s with the Metropolitan Line. It's another trace fossil. And because it burrows into pre-existing geology, it will be there in perpetuity. It will be a, a continuous 
example of us. And in terms of their complexity and scale, much greater than anything that we saw in the geological record in the past. And look at the spread. In 15 decades, we have metro systems on every single continent, ice-free continent, in 15 decades as a signature of our species. Urban energy, urban metros. It is a global signature well into the future. It also dovetails with our mid-20th century ability to cause devastation. Okay, I hope in the first bit, I've shown you that from the mid-20th century, your signature on planet Earth is absolutely profound. Although that signature has been unfolding for millions of years, now your impact is really profound. And it's growing in terms of its impact. What I want to do now is just quantify for you how great that impact is. And I'm going to come back to the biosphere because that's the part of the Earth system that I know the most about as a paleontologist. Well, it's not going to be giant rampaging ants rampaging through Los Angeles. You can see the misogynism is running through this again. And in fact, you can't get giant rampaging ants because an arthropod skeleton won't sustain an animal this side this size. They just collapse. But your impact is nevertheless really profound on the hydrosphere, the atmosphere, the landscape and the biosphere. And it's this bit I'm going to focus on. I do like cats as well. I have to show you this one complicated diagram, but it's important nevertheless. This is the circle of life on planet Earth. So if you go to the top, the birth of planet Earth, four and a half billion years ago, then just track your finger around. And what you're tracking are changes in the biosphere over its entire duration. So we start with the earliest evidence of life, now take that back four billion years. And that's very simple life, and through most of the biosphere's duration, it's been very simple microbial life, individual cells. And then about half a billion years ago, the biosphere goes through a major transition. It starts, and it's a complicated process, but it starts to make animals. And it becomes an animal-rich biosphere for the last half billion years. I want to suggest to you that what you're doing as a species now is as profound as any of the changes in this whole four billion year cycle of life. Let's just examine this. Have humans caused a revolution, a revolution in the biosphere? So the first thing we might think about is extinction. We know we're causing extinctions on this planet. We're above background level. Is this a unique component of what humans do on planet Earth? It's certainly a significant one and a serious one. But it's not unique. Because over the past 600 million years, there have been at least five, probably six, mass extinction events. And each time the biosphere has recovered from this. In fact, it's recovered to become even more diverse. So this is terrible, but it's not unique. Your impact is even more profound than this. Profound as this will be, it's even greater. Let's have a look at the four things that you and I do which are completely unique from Earth history. The first thing, and we've mentioned this already, 
is the way in which we use energy. The huge amount of energy we appropriate from the biosphere. I've already talked about net primary production, so let me give you some other figures from Vaslav Smil, these figures are. Humans and their domesticated animals equal 170 million tons of carbon by dry mass. Wild mammals, that's all wild mammals, rats and elephants and giraffes and rhinoceros are 5 million tons, less than 5% of the biomass of you and I and the animals we like eating. It's a fundamental reconfiguration of the global ecosystem. And of course, we add to this appropriation of energy, the energy we take from fossil fuels as well. And it's not just on the land, we also appropriate energy from the oceans. In fact, we are amassing production in the oceans. 160 million tons of fisheries taken out of the oceans in 2012. So we're also dominant in the marine part of the biosphere too. That's unique for a species to dominate the land and the sea is unique in the history of planet Earth. The invasion of the body snatchers, and they're not really body snatchers, but they are ecosystem snatchers. This is the human translocation of animals and plants and microbes across planet Earth. It's profound. And this has happened before in pre-human history, when continents have joined together, like North and South America joined together three million years ago, and armadillos went north, for example. Many organisms went south. The difference at present is that this is global. And it's even in very remote places. Like New Zealand, it's geographically remote. Hawaii, it's geographically remote. And yet, look at the number of invasive plant species in New Zealand, or the number of invasive plant species in Hawaii. It's a profound reconfiguration of the biosphere on planet Earth. The Pacific rat arrives in the Hawaiian Islands and across much of Polynesia about eight centuries ago. And it has an impact on the biosphere. 800 years later, other species are translocated. So now in the 20th century, we have the cannibal snail and the giant African snail. This one obviously comes from Africa. This one comes from Central America. They're not just translocated to Hawaii, They've been translocated across the world. And here, they've decimated the local biota. They've extirpated it. It's disappeared to be replaced by these species. So that's two factors so far. Energy use, translocation of organisms. The third one is the anthropicization of the landscape. That's all around us to behold. This is the way that humans change the morphology of the landscape and of the ecosystems that exist in those landscapes. But this is very much the work of a gentleman called Earl Ellis at the University of Maryland. And Earl has categorized these different human-dominated landscapes. And I just want to show you how they've evolved over 300 years. So back in the 1700s, used landscapes about 5%. That would be urban zones, for example. Semi-natural landscapes are those that are impinged upon by humans. And then the wild landscapes are those that are still effectively isolated from human impact. Let's come forward 300 years. And now 75% of the ice-free surface of planet Earth is impacted on by you and I. 
75%. And I have to use this quote from Earl because it's very disturbing in some ways. The world is no longer dominated by natural ecosystems with humans disturbing them, but rather is dominated by human systems with natural systems more or less embedded within them. So the non-human component of the biosphere is supplanted by the human component of the biosphere. And even the organisms in those ecosystems are being changed so that we can take photosynthetic systems from simple plants and translate them into higher plants to increase, increase productivity. Well, look what we've done to chickens in 50 years. We like eating chickens, so we've increased their biomass, individual biomass, fourfold in 50 years because we like eating them. And in fact, modern broiler chickens cannot exist without the human process. After about six weeks, if we didn't eat them, they'd die anyway. That's how profound our impact is on this particular species. And the final of the four components is the technosphere. This is the idea of Peter Haff at Duke University, and the technosphere is growing out of the biosphere. It's linked to the biosphere, it needs the biosphere to survive, but it's emerging as a new sphere of planet Earth. It is. Humans, their technology, the interconnections between these and all of our human institutions. And this is the arterial system of the technosphere that you're looking at here, the way in which we move commodities around the planet. Commodities that we're really poor at recycling and sustaining this. This is an amazing figure. This shows how the technosphere is developing at an incredible rate. So concrete production to build all those wonderful cities in, the America, in North America in the 20th century, 4.4 gigatons. China topped that in three years in this century to build its megacities. That's the acceleration of this process. And the explosive diversity of technology that is filling the spaces that we evolve as engineers. All species engineer environments for other species, ecosystem engineering. The difference with humans is we engineer spaces for technological species to evolve into. Think of this room. The only species in this room, metazoan species, animal species, is you. Of course, there are all the microbes in your gut, some diversity there. But then think of all the technological species in this room. The camera, the chairs, the screen, the computer, the projector, the lights, the chairs, the carpet. They're all technological species filling this room. We generate eco-space for technology. And all of this dovetails with that parameter that I talked about earlier, our ability to use sources of energy that are extrasolar, atomic sources of energy. I'm going to finish now, and I'm going to finish by doing something which is incredibly stupid for any scientist. It's really stupid, so you'll have to bear with me. I'm going to try and give you three potential paths for the near future. So one path is that as a species, we precipitate a mass extinction event. That's quite possible in the next few decades, 100, 100 years. 
if we continue to go at the same rate as we do. What would happen? We precipitate a mass extinction, perhaps we lose 75% of the species of the planet. And maybe humans go down too. So maybe this species disappears as well. What would happen in the coming millennia? The species that remain would evolve to refill the ecologies that had been vacated. It's a beautiful book if you want to read it. So the Distarterops is a rat that has evolved to be a walrus-like animal. And the Vortex is a penguin that has evolved to fill the eco-space vacated by the whales that humans exterminated. It's a possibility. It's a theoretical possibility of the future. So three possible scenarios for what might happen in the near future. And after this, you can shout at me and see whether we agree on this or not. The first one is that the Anthropocene is a short-lived experiment conducted by you and I that becomes unsustainable because the technosphere is using up all the resources so rapidly and the whole system collapses and it's associated with a mass extinction event. And that, of course, would leave a very distinctive geological signature, probably on the scale of what we saw at the Cretaceous tertiary boundary when the dinosaurs were wiped out. So that would be geologically very significant. The second one is, from my perspective, even more terrifying. The first one's pretty bad. This one's really terrifying, and it's in the boundaries of science fiction because the technosphere is an emergent system. It is self-organizing. You and I have no control over it whatsoever. We cannot stop it developing. A nation-state cannot stop it developing. It is completely beyond the bounds of human control. So if it became self-sufficient, and it's showing no signs of that at the moment, it looks like it's on a destruction path, if it became self-sufficient, maybe it would supplant us or subsume us. That would simply be the way that evolution on planet Earth has happened in the past. The third scenario is the one that we all have to work incredibly hard for. The third scenario is where the biosphere and the technosphere evolve a synergy, where the technosphere becomes sustainable and the two can support each other. And we can have a long discussion about how we arrive at this after this, although actually as a species we don't have very long to develop this. We have to get this going quite quickly. But even in that final scenario, in that third scenario, if, if we can do that, if we can develop a synergy between the technosphere and the biosphere, we will have fundamentally reconfigured the biosphere on planet Earth, and we will have fundamentally re re reconfigured the track of evolution long into the future. And that means that we will have state-shifted planet Earth into a completely different forward trajectory. And that's the kind of, that's my final passing comment. Thank you for listening. So I'm not going to hold you long. I just want to, um, I guess, ask a question or, or uh, throw a question out to you, which is about uh, the danger 
which we have, which we have to confront and which we are confronting um, through Mark, of thinking of us as a uniform species, um, which we are, we're all a homo sapiens, but the people who are creating, the we who are creating a great deal of these stories that Mark has presented us are not a uniform people. I just want to quote you two statistics, and they're from um, 2013, so I'm sure they're a great deal worse now. One is an Oxfam report in 2013 that the 85 richest individuals in the world had a wealth that equaled 3.5 billion people who constitute the poorest. In other words, as we as a species become more and more dominant in the, in the world, we as a people are becoming more and more unequal. That is to say, it's actually a very small percentage of this species that's doing the damage. One more figure, another, uh, another figure from 2013 concludes that since about 1751, which might be one marker for the Anthropocene, around about the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, a mere 90 corporations have been responsible for two-thirds of humanity's creations of greenhouse gas emissions. In other words, about 90 corporations have created, in effect, have created the climate change problems we find now. So that what we need to do is to take the message that Mark has given us about what we as a uniform species are responsible for, but also we have to look at this politically and socially and look, is who, look at who is responsible for actually creating these things because it's not, the, it's not it's somebody in Nigeria, for example, we could fly from, uh, uh, I think it's from LA to New York and that would use up more an energy than an individual in Nigeria uses over a year. You can't hold that individual equally responsible for the, for, the, for the use of energy that Mark was showing us. And I think what we have to do is put these two stories together, the story of the massive management of the world that is occurring, the, man, the, the way in which we are seizing uh, the capacity to change the world uh, in, in all these different ways, and yet at the same time creating monumental inequalities around the globe, increasingly increasing inequalities around the globe. And so the story is a two stories um, that need to be brought together to, uh, to deal with the issue, and I'll leave it at that. Go out there and save us.